Hey, pull up a chair. Tax on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. Well, welcome to Hacks on Tap, the morning after the Samanex debate. We have a lot to say about that, but quickly, an administrative note. My partner in crime, the great David Axelrod, as many of you probably observed, was up uh, late last night with CNN in Iowa, and he was due this morning uh, to, I think, cut the ribbon at a new Kia dealership somewhere in Florida. The man the man never turns a gig down. So we, we looked at the schedule, and in order to get one of these out timely today because of the debate, we had to call in the pinch hitter while Axe is on an overnight flight. And so I am very pleased to introduce my partner today, filling in for Axe, the great Robert Gibbs. Hello, Robert. Mike, how are you? I'm good, man. Thanks for doing this. Um, uh, our audience know you. You're a super hack, legendary consultant, Obama communications guru, uh, and uh, now now corporate uh, kingpin, but all, all around uh, s- special super hack. So thanks a lot for filling in today as we try to take apart the great debate. You're the only person that I'm going to let call me a super hack and think that's a good idea. <laughs> no, hack hack in our little universe of this podcast is a total honorific and excellent. Uh, again, you're you're an old pal of mine and of course David, so it's great to have you. Good to be here. Before we jump into the uh the the debate of the ages from last night on CNN from uh, Des Moines out there, we, we ought to play candidate psychologists, strategists yep. a little bit and kind of think about what was in the candidates' heads before they entered the debate stage, their last big shot through free media at the, uh, at least on live television, at the at the voters in the upcoming caucus, which is approaching quickly in early February. So there's nothing, as you well know, bigger than the Des Moines Register poll. Right. It's, it's sainted. It, it's, it is the best poll, and maybe it's a bit of a cult, but that really was a few days ago the scene setter in Iowa. So why, why don't you take us through the polling, and we're kind of think through what the candidates were thinking about where they stand before the debate, and then we'll take the debate apart. Yeah, and as you said, Mike, I mean, it is hard to imagine a poll – that seems to be more of a gold standard in a state than this poll. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think that the lore and legend of that, quite frankly, has only grown over the past few clearly presidential cycles. Uh, and I think it is one of those things. Uh, it's one of the only polls that I know they send out a tweet that says the poll is coming, basically set your alarm. <laughs> and so I can, no, I exactly. can only imagine yeah, and yeah. I can remember as a, 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 on campaigns, you, you you get tense that hour before the poll to see sort of what your grade is. You're so right. It's literally the Lenny Riefenstahl poll because they do the whole, it's coming, right. it's coming, stay tuned, the Messiah. It's unbelievable. But the impact it has on Iowa politics and, and – uh, on the inside and the outside, and even I think some voters will look at it as pretty pretty strong. Enormous. And, and it showed that, quite frankly, and I think you saw this a bit last night, any of the top four candidates – can win this race. So uh, mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders was at 20, Elizabeth Warren uh, at 17, uh, Mayor Pete at 16, Joe Biden at 15, uh, Amy Klobuchar quite a bit of ways back at six, uh, and then a series of other candidates uh, underneath that, uh, uh, not really accumulating a lot, but we'll we'll get to probably the, the important role that those candidates can play. And, and as I said, I think any of these four top four candidates can see themselves as the winner in, in a little less than three weeks. And I think if you look really at the dynamics underneath this poll, I think it really explains why, uh, as you said, it was the Samanex debate, or I, I think in many ways, 
each of the candidates kind of repaired to their corner to make the case they've been making. But 45% of the people in the poll said they could be persuaded to support a different candidate. Almost half of that electorate is is legitimately up for grabs, more so when you add in the 13% that identify as they haven't made a choice yet. So I, mm-hmm. I think one of the things that we all have to step back and realize that as voters don't obsess about this stuff and they don't totally. feel like they have to rush to make a choice, um, they can watch and play the long game on this and see what happens and, and how to make up their minds. And look, there's also interesting dynamics. Three of the six candidates that we saw last night uh, just got, uh, or they're getting later this afternoon, something in the mail for jury duty uh, in the United States Senate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, regrettably, none of them can uh, can get out of that jury duty. They'll be in jury duty for probably a huge part of if not the entirety of what remains of Iowa. And that's a really big deal. Mike, you and I know this because we've been out there. One of the first things you do at a meeting is everybody lays out on the, on the chairs a pledge card, right? You, you want yep. someone to make a decision right there, and they may do that. They may hear a great answer and say, okay, I've heard enough. I'm ready to sign up. I'm ready to be committed for you. The absence of those debates uh, or the absence of those town halls uh, makes some of this debate uh, more interesting. Totally. There's a there's a phenomena where uh, in, in this period in the Iowa caucus and also in New Hampshire, but that comes even a little later, where there's sort of a surge in attendance at events because the mm-hmm. Iowans or the New Hampshire primary voters feel a certain obligation to do all their shopping. It's kind of like yep. Christmas shopping. So now's when they might have seen you once or twice before, but you were literally talked to an Iowa now, well, you know, I haven't seen Amy Klobuchar or I haven't, I've only was at Biden once and I couldn't hear it was way in the back. So they start showing up. And as you say, it's, it's, it's kind of like sales. They're trying to close them now with those pledge cards. Cause once you sign the pledge card, they grab onto you like you've done a timeshare application or something. And, you know, next thing you know, your, your, your brother's kid who just happens to be working for Biden is showing up every day to check in on you with exactly. waving the pledge card around. So being stuck in Washington and you say is a problem. I even think a few of them might start holding up iPads, broadcasting sort of thought bubbles and stuff, desperate to get on TV, um, you know, as they're as they're sitting there, knowing that Biden and Pete and, you know, to a much lesser extent, Steyer are out there pounding the pavement uh, in the room, getting crowds of interest while they're sitting there listening to this thing drone on. There's going to be the smell of jet fuel uh, that that (laughs) burns at the end of each day of that uh, Senate trial as as folks try to get to Iowa for a couple of meetings or uh, or what have you. You know, somebody ought to just quickly, I can't resist a press hack idea. Somebody ought to, for the planet, that they all have to take a shuttle together, <laughs> cram them all in a small jet. You know, Bernie and Elizabeth both duct tape to a chair so there's no fighting. Um, <laughs> the, the Senate shuttle. Oh, that would be funny. Given the dynamics at the end of that debate last night, we might need some assigned seating, Mike, for uh, yes, for that for that charter. A couple other numbers to give you here. Thirty-two uh, percent of caucus goers in the poll are either undecided, we talked about a second ago, or backing a candidate that doesn't meet the viability threshold. Now, for people that are listening, when you show up at a caucus site, yeah, this is key. If your candidate doesn't have 15% of the vote, and after that first vote, you've got to reallocate to a candidate that is viable. 
And so the dynamics, and again, I think this played a big part in last night's race. The, the, the dynamics of that are going to be tremendously important. So you can see that, quite frankly, when Bernie and Elizabeth want to de-escalate a bit, it's because they understand maybe they're going to be viable in most places, but if they're not, they want the uh, they want to get the other candidates vote, right? right. And, yeah. and it, this is really important. Let, let's hang a big lantern on it. So, yep. because it's a caucus, you show up, and particularly on the Democratic side, the Republican side is a little different, but that won't matter, of course, now uh, in this election cycle. But you. You show up, you vote for your person, and, hey, I'm with Amy, and we only got 9%. We only brought 90 people out of 1,000. So then if you're an Amy person, you either go home or, and why do that? It's kind of fun. You look around and you decide which group to go walk over and join, literally. Now, the walk is kind of a walk of shame because you see the veterinarian who came out to your farm to save your most important livestock at 3 in the morning six months ago glaring at you over from Mayor Pete World. And then you got your brother's idiot kid who finally got a job working for Biden. Or, and you got to do the walk of shame and land somewhere. So if you... It, that's why organization is so important. But if if there was a bad moment in debate where you can tell your your you know brother's idiot kid at Biden, look after what he said about Amy last night. There's no way you get an excuse. Right. And so nobody in this tight clump top you know four wants to be the person at the debate who was the goat and 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 therefore raises their negative among others. Which is again why they all decided to avoid risk. Right. And I'd say the last thing I would say is. Each of these candidates brings in uh, a good set of advantages that makes their candidacy um, strong and and why they like their position, right? So if you're if you're looking at at Bernie Sanders, you've got the the voters that are or caucus goers in this case most likely to stick and be excited about their candidate. He's got a rock solid base. Um, Elizabeth Warren, uh, if you look at this poll, is in a fairly close second uh, after after having probably not had a good couple of months, and she's got a great organization. Pete and Biden, on the other hand, if you look at that 32% of candidates, when you ask uh, 32%, excuse me, of caucus goers, and you ask them, who are you considering? Pete and Biden have the biggest pool for that. So again, that all Mm -hmm. sets the dynamic of we walk out on stage. And it's interesting. I made a few notes right before the debate. What what are the what are the sort of two or three things that that I think stand out and and obviously one of them and we'll get to it is the the Warren Bernie dynamic uh, off of the story that popped a day or so ago but one of the the things I wrote down was you know who makes their case the best who takes a question and doesn't just give an answer of issues but molds and melds that to the larger message case that they're trying to deliver to voters. And I actually thought that that dynamic going into the debate was probably going to be stronger than this idea of, hey, I'm going to tear down a couple of candidates. Because as we talked about, whether it's viability, whether it's the idea of civility, whether it's this idea that many people uh, just haven't made up their minds, there's just not a lot of upside in going stark raving negative uh, and and potentially risking not only not getting who you're trying to get, but losing who you have. Yeah, I would say except for Amy, who's circling the drain in the polling. You know, there's been this anecdotal talk of her big surge coming, right. but it, it hasn't happened. There's still a little time for her. This thing is pretty open, but boy, oh boy, the curtain's dropping. So you could see last night 
that she, she didn't really attack anybody, but she was she was trying to jostle to get attention and be the big personality. I, I felt for the moderators. Axe and I had the same experience when we had her on the podcast. You know, she would keep going. You you need kind of a jaws of life to wedge in a, a follow up question because she she knows this was her last big right. shot to get something going. And I, I thought she did pretty well with it. Well, let, let's pivot to the debate yep. with a footnote on the way. I should, uh, unless to avoid any angry emails from Biden press staffers, note a second poll, the Mammoth poll, yes. which is not as much of a famous icon of Iowa politics by any means as the DMR poll. But it came out, it was in the field four days later, it came out on the 12th. The uh, register poll came out on the Eighth, which means when they stopped interviewing voters. So it's a couple days fresher. And it was interesting because it had Biden leading at 24. Biden, you know, was running a tight fourth in the uh, Des Moines poll. Bernie at the top at 20, Biden down at 15. On this one, Biden was up at 24. And then it was they were clumped between 15 and 17. The other three, Pete, Bernie and Warren. And again, Amy down at eight in this case, a little better than her six in the register poll. So you've got one poll that says Joe's got to hustle up. You've got another poll that says Joe's leading, and it just shows you how kind of murky it is last night. And again, how in the debate nobody, nobody wanted to a, a, a negative mistake that could backfire was uh, much more dangerous and a more desirable goal than a risky swing for the fences. And that's why it was the Zamanex debate. And I think it's you know if you're a reporter, um, you're building up this idea of hey, this is the last debate before. Um, the voting starts in the caucus, which is a bit maybe of of uh, a misnomer in the sense that these candidates are going to see literally hundreds of thousands of voters between now, uh, or most of them will, depending on their jury duty obligations. They're going to see a lot of voters, so it, it's it's not as if this is the night before the election and they they there there's this huge impetus. As I said, I think all four of the of the big four can win. They like the cards they have. And uh, as you said, there's just not a lot of upside in, uh, in, in pushing that too far. Right. Right. And they've got other ways to nibble. They've got field. They got God. Yep. The mailboxes are full. The TV airwaves are jammed. I mean, they, as you say, they're not out of business. It, what this was really, and I agree with what you, what, the way you postulated, it was the last chance to really, grab the media for a few days. And I think one of the problems for Pete and Biden are not really problems, just kind of irritants of last night's debate was that Elizabeth and Warren grabbed it somewhat on trivia. You know, the famous denied handshake from hell after the debate. I I guess we should start with a little bit about their Cold War and then then go through the candidates last night. You you want to walk us through how it happened? Because there, you know, there was some precursor to this with that volunteer script that got leaked. So right. it's like a cold war. They're smiling, but under the surface, they're stabbing each other. Well, and, and the interesting part is we've come a really long way in the political life of this campaign. And almost at every turn, each of the candidates has had the opportunity to critique or criticize the other, uh, uh, Sanders and Warren. And they almost always demure, uh, saying they're, they, they share a lot of their same beliefs, uh, they're not running against each other, even though they obviously are. Uh, and so I, I think there has been this um, – they're clearly in the same lane of voters, uh, which – Yeah, and you can see that in the polling is one rises, yeah, yeah. the other has gone down. So they are caught in this – Totally. It's not exclusive, but somewhat battle over the same folks. And when Elizabeth was doing what well a few months ago, it was really hurting Bernie. Now Bernie's having, at least in the polling, a comeback. And and the story drops, I guess, uh, on Monday. Um, well, as you said, that first there are these volunteer scripts of, and and, and you know, the, 
the way the Sanders campaign explains it is it's not necessarily a proactive script. It's if you're at a door and somebody says, well, I like your candidate, but I also like this candidate. Here are some reasons why you know, you maybe shouldn't be for this person. You should be for my person, uh, got into, well, the, 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 the Warren, Warren voters or, or the Warren campaign really is, is, uh, represents elitists and represents, uh, you know, a, right. a different group of people and, and maybe not the group of people that you're in. And again, it, it was this, <laughs> it, it rarely does the volunteer door script of a, <laughs> of a door knocker in Story County become a national political story, but it did over the weekend. Yeah, and the press, of course, is bloodthirsty for yes. conflict between them. I mean, literally, Bernie looked at her funny. It w- w- would break through the story. So the fact there's a script that on the phone or at the door when somebody says, well, I'm kind of leaning toward Elizabeth, and then it's a great passive-aggressive script. It's worth reading. It basically says, well, she's really great and wonderful. Now, you know, it may be a problem the fact she killed that guy in Toledo in 88 <laughs> or the army boots she wears all the time. I don't know if they show when. And, yeah, you know, she's exactly. kind of a wine and cheese candidate, unlike Bernie. The- anyway, they go on and on. Now, by the way, I would bet dollars to donuts that the field directors uh, in the Warren campaign have an equal bit of business when somebody starts pushing Bernie on the phone. But this one got discovered by the press, so all of a sudden it's the Zimmerman Telegraph. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And, you know, it turns on for a while, but it sets the stage in Warrenville of, all right, payback time. Right. And and then the story pops, I guess, Monday that in a dinner that was had between uh, Warren and Sanders, um, they have a discussion, uh, about electability, about gender, uh, and, uh, the, it's reported that Bernie tells Elizabeth Warren, uh, that a woman can't win the presidency. Uh, and I'm hoping he literally used the phrase, Hey, Missy, <laughs> uh, <laughs> just because he's Bernie. And, so yeah, allegedly now th- I thought when it first broke, and I'd be very interested in your opinion as former white house press secretary, this thing was a private conversation between two people with no staff. And now it's in the paper with an right. allegation about what one said, where neither at the beginning was a source. Right. So this is telephone. It's high school. Well, I hear that, you know, Reggie and Jerlene were together last night, and Jerlene says that Bobby really likes Kathy. <laughs> um, and then all of a sudden that's in the paper of no name sources. So I thought right. it was pretty sketchy at the beginning, but then Elizabeth, you know, weighed in. Well, it, it, Elizabeth weighed in, uh, it, but interestingly, you know, it was pretty well sourced. Three or four sources had been told the same story. So it, it seemed, the story seemed pretty rock solid. I think the Sanders folks realized that they went, this was DEFCON 1. Uh, they had to do something. They quickly got people out there. Bernie denied it. The campaign manager denied it. Surrogates denied it. Um, now, maybe even took it a little too far because then, wasn't just denied that it was said, but said they're lying. The campaign is lying. Right, right. And that, I think, when you get to defense condition one, it means you're at war, and this is what happened. And I think that caused Warren to put out a statement uh, later that day, even though she, for a long time, several hours, didn't yeah. comment on it. She puts out a statement and says, yeah, that's what happened. And now she also- right. and now that she's involved, it's a real deal story. Yep. Because she becomes the source. Right? And that sets up what we know is going to be one of the pressure point moments in this debate. And I thought CNN was smart um, 
to not start with that. I mean, it was on the tip of everybody's tongue. Everybody's wanting to see this dynamic. Uh, uh, and they could have thrown that red meat right in the middle to at the very beginning, and they didn't. Um, but it, it was clear that this was going to get testy. It was clear that for whatever reason, two people are in the room having the same conversation and either heard or believed two two decidedly different things. I don't. It, it is interesting to think: could you really come out of that discussion with one believing uh, one had said that a woman couldn't win, and the other thinking, "Well, of course I didn't say that." It does seem, yeah, um, like a black and white thing. Well, Bernie in his denial earlier left a little bit of a trap door because as and I I won't have this verbatim but but these are things that are they're written like depositions. But he said in the discussion or a source close to Bernie anyway, they put out the message that Bernie might have said that Trump is a sexist and a racist and a bad dancer of stupid hair. So in a campaign, don't expect him not to try to use sexism and stuff like that. I mean, they they kind of yep. tickled the border there, but the Warren people tried to make a thing out of it. And in our last call, I've got another point about this whole uh, this whole topic. But do you think today the big media chase and maybe something's on the wire? I missed it's early here in California will be reporters trying to get Bernie or Elizabeth's staff on background to say what the post-debate no handshake back and forth yeah. was about. And that's the new jump ball to characterize that. And that'll make the thing go for another day. Now, of course, all of this squeezes Biden, who would love to be right. reading about world affairs expert dominates debate during time of Iranian crisis, or Mayor Pete, generational appeal excites voters. Instead, we're, we're debating whether or not to... Uh, Elderly left-wingers agreed to shake hands after a debate or not. And if you see the clip of this, you can tell it gets tense pretty quickly. And, uh, I mean, anytime somebody wants to shake somebody's hand and they demure, uh, that's not exactly a great way to start a conversation. Uh, They're both cranky people, too, to be (laughs) honest. Neither of them are sunny personalities. I think she can be, but— And if you wanted to know what um, $100 million to get on a debate stage looks like for Tom Steyer, he's going over at that moment to basically shake hands and say, good to see you, and and it's pretty clear as standing there watching this happen, and and I think probably— got booked on several shows afterwards, not because of a stellar debate performance, but the, did you happen to overhear what Sanders might have said to Warren and vice versa? So I, I, you know, that, that poor guy is, uh, is in the debate roundup as having been, uh, um, well, thankfully we're off. He wore the same tie for the umpteenth time in a row, but now, you know, did you see the two argue? And it was, yeah, uh, the peak of his campaign. That's hilarious. He was the guy watching the, the big show go by, but he was there. Yep. Uh, who do you think won the debate? Was there a winner? How would you scorecard it? I honestly don't think there was. I think each of the candidates probably feels fairly good about the case they made. I thought, um, though we didn't have big moments of contrast uh, or real pointed moments, I still think many of the candidates did what they wanted to do. I thought Bernie did a really good job. Um, a, a really good line uh, when they got into the the back and forth on Iraq. Again, something you knew might come, and it comes in the Mm -hmm. very beginning. And I thought Bernie did a really good job of saying, look, George Bush, Dick Cheney, and Don Rumsfeld all made the case on Iraq. Uh, I thought they were lying, and Joe Biden believed them. And, um, you know, it it wasn't... He didn't outline it like that in case you forgot who the vice president and secretary of defense were. Uh, Those are 
boogeyman in the Democratic primary, and he wanted to make sure that that, that was laid forth. You know, I thought, uh, I, I, we'll get to it. I think Elizabeth had a, a really good moment in the back and forth uh, with with Sanders on what the issue we just talked about. I, I think if you're Joe Biden this morning, you're happy that nobody broke out and won. You're happy that you didn't make a mistake. But boy, I felt like he was the gymnast that just didn't stick the landing on most questions. And I, I, I you know, maybe you're getting 80 or 85 percent of the way there, but you're not really um, I, I just didn't think he made the case that he wanted to make as forcefully uh, until, ironically, the very end, his closing statement, which I'm sure we'll get to um, you, you watching the screen and you think to yourself, Where's the passion and the forcefulness? Where's this guy been for the last two hours and 10 minutes? Yeah. Um, and now the upside of that is maybe that's the last thing you leave people with and they feel better about the beginning of it. It also could leave you thinking, you know, it, it wouldn't generally take two hours and 10 minutes to warm up, but maybe in this case it did. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think there was one clear, obvious winner, which was the left wing nanny state. I mean, I saw trillions of of uh, spending promises go by. And although Trump makes my blood boil and I want him to lose, it was a rough night for a Republican to watch the whole thing. I mean, they, they were making spending commitments you would have been terrified to make in a Democratic primary debate eight years ago. But we're in a new era now. As far as the debate, I, I think on performance it was Warren. We're, we're going to go to that clip in a sec. Um, but Geo strategically, I think it was Bernie. He's the guy yeah. on the move. He knows his message. He plays his hits. He did it well, and nobody laid a glove on him. So, uh, let, let, let's do a little listening here. Let, let's go to the uh, the big moment with uh, Elizabeth, kind of clearing the deck with the soundbite of the night about gender and politics and all these dudes. This question about whether or not a woman can be president has been raised, and it's time for us to attack it head on. Um, and I think the best way to talk about who can win is by looking at people's winning record. So can a woman beat Donald Trump? Look at the men on this stage. Collectively, they have lost 10 elections. <laughs> the only people on this stage who have won every single election that they've been in are the women, Amy so and me. person on this stage who has beaten an incumbent Republican any time in the past 30 years is me. Well, look, that was as good as Elizabeth Warren gets. It was the dominant soundbite of the debate, uh, and it connected with the crowd. So I give her an A for that one. Absolutely. Uh, a strong answer. And, and let's be clear, the, the back and forth that they were having is not just about gender. It's about electability. And electability is driving a big part of the passion in the Democratic primary. Uh, it will drive it in Iowa in a huge way because Democrats want to win the White House back. They want to deny four more years to, to President Trump. And mm -hmm. I think she put this in the frame of electability, right? We've won. Uh, the women up on this stage have won every race we've been in. You guys have lost 10 races. I beat an incumbent Republican. Uh, you, you know, I, 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 a, a really strong answer. And, and it shows you that 
a lot of these campaigns probably came in with four or five moments that they wanted to have. Uh, this one was rehearsed. Uh, it, it was probably done almost verbatim, and she delivered it really well, really convincingly. And it's the clip that you'll hear throughout the day, today, tomorrow, as you said, capturing that media attention for the next couple of days. Uh, and I think it was uh, a, a great moment for her in this debate. You know, I, I got a couple of horse laughs watching it right afterward because I thought, oh, that's a good piece of work. Although as a political hack, I was snorting because only a Democratic primary could you brag about winning Massachusetts. You know, I did it again. I I uh, <laughs> I beat the conservatives who dominate the uh, the enclave of Massachusetts. And then they all pivoted. And then Bernie got all cranked up in 1948. I ran against a Hoover Republican. I beat him. You got your facts wrong. And then somebody else, you know, and, and I, I a little bit of... I, of a tear came to my eye thinking about poor Steve Bullock, the governor of Montana, a red state where he routinely beats Republicans, uh, being laughed out of the race, never really getting in it. And Michael Bennett, who I would argue and Carville just endorsed as the most electable candidate, he's from the swing state of Colorado where he's done well, uh, it, it can't get arrested right now. So the fact is it was all phony. They're all talking about winning easy states for a Democrat to win, but it's still made for an effective line. So she wins the prize. She wins the prize. I did think it was – I'm sure the Bernie people were uh, pulling their hair out at this uh, when they, as you said, they get to this point in the debate and he's like, well, you know, I beat a Republican and it was 30 years ago. And she said, well, I said in the last 30, and you're thinking to yourself, if you're Bernie, you're kind of out of this back and forth on, on gender in a way that, that, that hasn't hurt you. That story's really challenging and important. Um, how do you make sure that you don't get sucked into this? And he almost did. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, in the, um, in the line, uh, uh, sweepstakes, um, even though I think she had a bit of a flailing debate as benefits her situation in the polling. I thought Amy Klobuchar has remained the best critic of uh, the Medicare for All stuff, a role I wish, where I think Joe wishes he had, but she's good at it. And she had this Vegas chips analogy that I thought was a pretty strong way to frame it. Here she is. This debate isn't real. I was in Vegas the other day and someone said, don't put your chips on a number on the wheel that isn't even on the wheel. That's the problem. Over two thirds of the Democrats in the U.S. Senate are not on the bill that you and Senator Warren are on. I think to your point about Biden, he could have sidecar on that a little bit more because in a lot of those counties, the Klobuchar people, unless she has a surge in the next two weeks, which is not impossible, uh, they're going to be falling off. And the more she is the common sense, fiscal restraint, moderate Democrat, uh, Joe should be blowing that horn to try to line up those second place voices. And as you say, other than his clothes, which I thought was good, that's the winning Biden. We saw a little more of it in the last debate. The, the rest of it was workmanlike. He didn't make any terrible Biden gaffes, which for him is an accomplishment always. So, you know, I don't give him a D or an F, but it, it was sort of a C-plus flat performance till the end. And if you believe the register poll of him a few beats behind, he, he needs to do a little better than that to close this race. Because the guy in the most danger, I think, is if Biden is third or fourth, and he, a week later yeah. he can't come surging back in New Hampshire— He's toast. He's the former frontrunner. Frontrunners aren't allowed to lose. Well, it will be interesting to see, and we, we obviously won't know this for several weeks, but does does anybody rethink their debate strategy in hindsight uh, after tonight? Now, again, I, I think based on where the race is, they did what they needed to do. I, I think your point on Klobuchar, I, I think she makes the contrast in a more pointed 
more detailed way than uh, than Biden does, and and in a way Biden you would kind of want to make. I thought a terrific line where she says, um, where she talks about this idea of just because it's the biggest number doesn't mean it's the best policy, meaning the right, biggest right. number good. in terms of spending. And I think I, I thought like she's got a lot of lies. You could even see it when um, when they got into foreign policy with Biden in a in a place that he clearly wants to. Uh, accentuate his advantages that he already enjoys because he was vice president, Senate foreign relations committee chair. Um, but even, even in that, uh, he, he basically finds himself agreeing with part of the answer that Pete gives because he didn't give it, uh, on authorization of military force. So I, I, again, I thought just, you know, he just probably wasn't as sharp on some of the points that I thought he might. Again, what they may be doing and may, may smartly be doing is if you figure Amy Klobuchar at six or eight isn't going to be viable, but she's basically talking to the same voters I am, let, let's just let's hang back a little bit. Let Amy make the contrast on Elizabeth. And then if I'm in at that precinct in uh, Potawatomi and somebody doesn't have the viability threshold in the Amy camp, maybe they just walk over to the Biden camp. Yeah, I just think he has to use the debate to hang a bigger lantern. He was kind of oddly passive, but that's, again, part of not screwing up. Biden also has the headwind, I think, of a little weaker organization. He's going to have less veterinarians staring at people from the second round, and that counts in Iowa caucus. Now, let's talk about Mayor Pete. Here's somebody who was on fire and now is not doing poorly, but has lost, at least in the polling, a little bit of the momentum. He dropped nine points from the last register poll in this one. Now, that said, the Mayor Pete people have told me their internal tracking was never as good as the last register poll. But he was somebody, I think, who needed a gear shift. He's always very lucid. He performs well. There were no mistakes. But what was your take last night on Pete versus where he needs to be to close strong here and potentially even be in the top two in Iowa? Yeah, I, I thought it was going to be an interesting night for him because, as you said, uh, if you look at where he was in that registered poll, and boy, I'm sure they cringed when that poll came out uh, a couple of months ago. You just you don't you don't get to decide when you're going to peak, and God knows a bunch of these campaigns aren't ever going to peak. So you you don't want to look that in take that for granted, but. Boy, it was clear that the wave had crested too early. He lost a decent amount, as you saw in this Des Moines Register poll. It came particularly on those who um, lessened their belief in his favorability, uh, his very favorable number uh, decreased. And I, I think he needed to go out and remind folks of his generational message. So, again, I thought he did a fairly good job of of not just taking a question and saying, here are the seven issues I believe are important, but wrapping them in a, both a generational and a, I haven't served my whole life in Washington frame, yeah. which I think is important because that's his contrast, right? It, 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 Tom Steyer aside, you've got the other four candidates who have spent are either currently in or spent a huge amount of their life in Washington. And his message is, if you think Washington messes everything up, I, let me remind you, I'm not from Washington. And oh, by the way, I'm also not really old. And yeah. so I, I think he tried to wrap that into, again, I think whether it was where the polling is or where the format is, 
questions tended to lend themselves to answers that seemed like 45 seconds out of their stump speech. And I think Pete did a good job of delivering those stump speech moments. Here's a Pete moment, which I thought was pretty strong. I'm ready to take on Donald Trump because when he gets to the tough talk and the chest thumping, he'll have to stand next to an American war veteran and explain how he pretended bone spurs made him ineligible to serve. And if, and if he keeps trying to use religion, if a guy like Donald Trump keeps trying to use religion to somehow recruit Christianity into the GOP, I will be standing there not afraid to talk about a different way to answer the call of faith and insist that God does not belong to a political party. But my criticism of Pete, who I'm sympathetic to because I like smart presidents, even if they're far more liberal than I am, is that he never seems to be, or very infrequently, he just needs to do it more, to take command of the stage. Absolutely. It's like, and now we go to Pete for a a very informed opinion and a thoughtful remark. And he's very good at that. But to close this thing, I think there needs to be a moment where everybody's looking at Pete and he owns the damn stage. Biden had a little of that during his close. Warren had that when she, you know, slammed the, swung the big gender hammer around and clobbered a few people. Amy never quite had it, but when, when she was kind of going at somebody, there was a little bit of drama to it. When Bernie really winds up his act and is putting the corporations on alert and getting ready to slap the cuffs on you know the Fortune 500, there, there's some intensity to it. Well, well, Pete becomes the observer. So that is the missing piece. But, but with all that said, you know I'm having a little bit of a flashback to the wonderful days of the 2015-2016 Republican primary, and these analogies you've got to be careful with. But when Trump had his knot of voters, which was in the 20s at the beginning— uh, and started growing a bit, all the rest of us were like, look, the Trump people we could see in the polling are pretty locked into Trump. So you had Bush and Rubio and Kasich and Christie, uh, and to a lesser extent Cruz, who, who was kind of floating in, in Trump's wake, all turning on each other to say, all right, we're going to emerge as the anti-Trump and win the two-way in the end. Uh, and there's always a lot of criticism. Well, why didn't Jeb spend all his money killing Trump? Well, it wasn't our job to clear a path for uh, Rubio or Cruz, because Trump voters had you know some affection but no interest in voting for a guy they thought was his establishment as Jeb. So I see Bernie. You know, my headline on this debate is Bernie getting closer to potentially winning the Iowa caucus or at least being in the top two, right. which will change the dynamic of the race because then it's going to be down to Bernie versus somebody, and they all better solve that who the somebody thing is pretty quick, which right. will be a Biden, Pete to some extent. Elizabeth race, though, he could squeeze her out because of their similarities uh, through the New Hampshire uh, primary a week before. Or Bernie may really start a run here. Um, so I think the the headline is Bernie is real and he's coming. And, you know, the, the Dems got to get organized about it or Trump's going to have the happiest week in February in his life. I agree with you on Pete. I mean, there's and. and you know, the one thing about these debates is there's those awkward cutaway pictures of the candidate with the kind of blank look on his face, holding his hand or her hand up, hoping to be recognized. Yeah, yeah third grader. Yeah, teacher, call on me. I I, I did my homework, too. Um, and I think, as you said, I, I think sometimes Pete does sink back a little bit and you, you do want that moment. I, I think it was smart of him not to try to force that moment. Um because again, that's that awkwardness and the dynamic that we talked about in the beginning. I think he was, uh, I think he had a pretty good close. Um, 
But I agree with you. I think there's there's a spark that he's going to need to look for. Now, again, the 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 advantage he may have, uh, presumably, will be he's going to be in a bus in Iowa when these other guys are back uh, in the Senate. That's a good point. And yeah. as you said, look, I, I, I think one of the things you said, too, I mean, Sanders is ahead in the Des Moines Register poll. His vote is more solid than anybody else's. Um, his money is great. Um, his organization is pretty strong. And so he's he's maybe got that ticket um, I think it will be interesting to see do these campaigns or have these campaigns made up their mind that this thing is going 15 rounds and maybe I don't want to exert myself and think I've got to knock somebody out in the first round or two because I, I'm going to be in this for the long haul. So yeah, I, agree. I, I think that may be something that, that Pete is looking at because you could think about it and I'll talk about this a bit in our last call. You know, if 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 Warren uh, and and Bernie are in the same lane, and Bernie is ascendant and strong, and that really damages Warren, you could see a Pete being okay if he may not be the storyline, but he's not going to be the one that might be going into New Hampshire having to need something big. Oh, I agree. Look- like. Somebody else will need. If it's Bernie Pete or God forbid Pete Bernie in the top two, it's the best thing in the world for Buttigieg because then he's posting up right. and he's the other guy, and there'd be a lot of pressure on non-hard lefty Democrats to go with him, and he'll either pass that test and he's got a great shot at being the nominee, or he won't, and maybe a Bloomberg scenario or a Biden comeback happens. But yeah, I think second in Iowa out of nowhere to Bernie. Uh, would bring some clarity to the race and give them the real the real magic bean. Well, look, that we'll have more of that to talk about going forward. Let's pivot over to Trump. Today is a big, big day. The impeachment army is marching from the House to the Senate to begin the completely fixed Senate trial. Um, but uh, it, it it has started. Any anything we don't see coming? Any surprises you see? No, I think the debate that we're going to have uh, that will play out in the next probably few days to the next couple of weeks is, are we going to have witnesses? Who are those witnesses going to be? Uh, and, and what will they say? We did see um, some new evidence come forward late yesterday uh, uh, from uh, one of Giuliani's um, Hench trolls, blood brothers, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the in the Ukraine, uh, some really disconcerting stuff on uh, the idea that somebody inside the embassy was watching the um, the ambassador there uh, and and monitoring her movements, um, which again, it, I mean, just seems like something out of uh, like a Tom Clancy novel uh, and not in a good way. Yeah. Um. So I I but I think the debate that that is going to be had and and what will potentially change any of the storylines. Are we going to have witnesses? Are we going to hear from John Bolton? And then, and consequently, what would he say? And what other witnesses might we have? You have seen in the past couple of days, more, more senators who most of them who are up in 2020 along with Trump that need to make sure that for their larger voter set in their state, Susan Collins, um, and others, Cory Gardner, Cory yeah. Gardner, that they can say, "Look, we took this seriously. Uh, we were impartial. We listened. We heard from witnesses, uh, and 
we made a determination. Yeah, that's the whole story right now. Can they get four Republicans to pop over with the 47 Ds, or I guess Murkowski being an independent, and essentially force some witnesses as political cover right. for the Repubs who are in trouble? I think the, the one factor is Trump, instead of trying to give them room to do something, to give them some cover— will demand absolute loyalty and demand the only witness be Sean Hannity or something, which will make the political situation worse for those Republicans rather than better, and they will not appreciate that. But we will see. I'm sure we have a lot to talk about next week. Well, let's go to the mailbag. Before that, I'll do our quick administrative update. Now, we've been tweeting a little bit about merch, Hacks on Tap Beer Steins. We are Working with North Korea to find a factory that'll uh, produce them cheap enough? No, I kid. X-Rod just veered off the road in his rental car somewhere. The deal with that is we have this great Libby Glass Toledo, Ohio, Hacks on Tap, 25-ounce, not for amateurs, Beerstein. The issue is the thing is so good, it's heavy, and we're trying to figure out how to do the shipping costs, so we're not selling $40 mugs here. So we're working on that, and we'll be back with an update. Now, if you have a question for the mailbag, you can email us at our special email address, hacksontap at gmail.com. That's hacksontap at gmail.com and ask us a question. And finally, don't forget to rate us, please, on iTunes. We, we've, we've made it. We're up in the 1% of all podcasts, but we want to go even higher um, and try to get our message out to more people. And what really helps is when you rate us or comment on iTunes because then the Apple algorithm pushes the content to more people. So thank you for listening, and any help you can give us there would be much appreciated. Okay, mailbag time. Number one question to the esteemed Mr. Robert L. Gibbs from Kimberly. If there were a brokered convention this summer, if, 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 do you think that the candidate that wins the plurality of votes can realistically be denied the nomination, and I'll add this, through backstage trickery, without leading to a bit of a primary voter revolt? Great question. Gibbs, what do you think? It is a great question, and I, I think it is completely inconceivable. Uh, I, I think if you, whichever candidate, goes into Milwaukee if we were to get to that stage. And it's certainly conceivable that we could. Um, but I think whoever has a plurality of delegates, that's how we select the nominee as delegates. Um, I think it, whoever has, whoever's leading that uh, is going to be the nominee. And I think if that person is not the nominee, uh, I think we're going to spend an awful lot of time repairing our party rather than taking the fight uh, into the general election. Yeah, I think you're right about the huge pressure that'll be put on that way. I I would just want to also solicit the opinion of the head of the teachers and public employee unions who actually delegate bodies. They have a lot of power if it were to go to an open convention. You know, this was always one of our nightmares back in Bob Dole days in the 90s in that a lot of the Dole delegates, which we would go win in a primary in 96, were actually Pat Robertson people. So on the third vote, when they're free, all of a sudden all, all the dull signs would be ripped off and the buttons would be thrown down and all of a sudden they'd be marching toward the light. So, you know, the, the, certain elements of labor, there are organized groups that have a lot of delegate bodies. And if there was a front-running candidate who was an anathema to them in the plurality, even though the public pressure would be amazing and intense, and I agree it could tear the party apart, I wouldn't bet against some trouble. But anyway, we'll see. No doubt, but I think we're going to know – um, mid to late March, uh, I think we'll see kind of where these campaigns settle out, how many are left. Uh, we'll have gone through some really big delegate-rich states, and I think we'll have a sense of where this thing is going to head. Yeah, and I think the overall uh, broker convention thing is not impossible but unlikely. 
Uh, okay, next question. This is from Chris, and it's to you. Most of the focus and analysis for the general election centers on Wisconsin as the blue wall. That will be the most difficult for the eventual dominee to win back, and he understands why. He's seen a couple of public polls showing Trump having very poor approval ratings in Iowa, uh, even though he won it handily in 2016. Have you seen data or evidence that Dems may flip back Iowa and not need Wisconsin? You know, I think the bet on Iowa should be a bet for Trump. There, there, there's some there's some bumpy polling everywhere for Trump, but things tend to revert to mean, and Iowa tends to be a more Republican state. Now, could Trump lose Iowa, and could Joni Ernst lose that Senate race, which ought to be an easy walk for? Her? I think absolutely, it is possible. I think Ernst is in worse position than Trump, but yes. However, if you look at history. The state that is much more of an outlier in terms of voting Republican is Wisconsin. We have not carried Wisconsin, we Republicans, since 1984, I believe. Might be 88, I'm pretty sure it's 84, until Trump. Now, Wisconsin is the site of a big anecdotal victory, and politics in D.C. is often argued foolishly by anecdote, which is there was a Supreme Court race, fairly low turnout, where the Republican upset and beat the Democrat. And that's led to a little bit of thinking, oh, Trump is really strong in Wisconsin. Now, Wisconsin has a relatively smaller percentage of voters of color, which always creates a challenge for the Democrats. There's a Republican theory that we Trump might be able to win Minnesota, another Democratic state that he hasn't covered, but he came close because the demography for there is not changing as badly as it is in other states. But still, if Trump is in trouble and losing Pennsylvania and losing Michigan, uh, I don't think there's a magic wall that saves him somehow in Wisconsin, though it is a slightly stronger Trump state right now than the others. I think the whole Great Lakes is in play. And if the Democrats can nom- nominate a candidate who doesn't scare the hell out of suburban voters on left-wing nuttiness and let them continue to punish Trump, I think Democrats can win all three. But, you know, who they nominate is still the big question. And for us never-Trump Republicans, these debates are a bit depressing because we don't see a superstar um, and apparently with the left rising as it is, the specter of a Democratic candidate that Trump can weaponize is very much in the air. Well, and I think if you look at candidates that won in tough races in 2018, uh, they were candidates that weren't necessarily talking about what some of the front runners are talking about in the Democratic primary right now. Yep. And I think that's concerning for uh, people that watch this from afar, not just in thinking about what happens in the House and the Senate races, but, you know, as you said, is is Trump able to take uh, a series of those promises and put them in front of voters in a way that makes not him electable, but makes the his opponent unelectable. I would still say uh, if you could tell me who wins Wisconsin, I could tell you who the next president's going to be. And I think it will all come down uh, to that state. And I um, want to apologize in advance to the citizens of that state for what they're going to go through in the next um, 11 months uh, <laughs> as we determine that. No, that's true. It is a great state. I worked there for Tommy Thompson back in the day and other things that I'm uh, even as a Michigander, I'm I'm fond of it. All right, I've got a quick final note here, just a point of personal privilege, because uh, Zahid asked a question, uh, and I'll summarize it, because he did a good job of writing a, a question that uh, is not short. In the last few years, as your rivals and colleagues, like fellow, you know, Repubza, Schmidt, Scarborough, people like that have deserted the Republican Party, you have pushed back strongly uh, on calls to do the same, declaring your intention to fight to reclaim the soul of the party. Have you, I'm shooting ahead, 
begrudgingly conceded that the GOP is realistically lost to the evil Trump sewer, et cetera, et cetera. Why haven't you left the party and why won't you do it now? Well, here's the problem, Zahid. I'm a conservative, so I want Trump to lose, but I'm not for a lot of this stuff that the Democratic Party is for, particularly on economics. On foreign policy, Trump is so crazy. I I think almost anything other than crazy isolationism uh, from a Bernie or Elizabeth Warren would be good. So I'm going to stay and fight. We're losing, but I believe in time uh, we will revert to and build a new modern conservatism, or we're going to lose a lot. And so I am, I am not, uh, I'm not leaving my party. But I have, as anybody who's followed me since about 1993 knows, uh, I'm always left Trump. So I'm sticking around to, to fight the the losing, never Trump battle in the short term, and hopefully win the win the prize in the right term because I am a conservative. All I can say is, Mike, come on in. The water's fine. <laughs> well, let, let's go to I hear the magic music. Last call. Uh, the audio sting, I should say. It's time for last call. Robert, you want to go first and then I'll bat cleanup. Yeah, this I think you, you touched on this earlier. That there's a lot of different storylines that will come out depending on where these candidates finish uh, in 18 days in Iowa. And, and I can think of lots of different ones. And I, I, reporters' notebooks are already filled, I'm sure, with these storylines. And I've harped on this for a while. So I think it is going to be really interesting to see. We've got four big candidates. Iowa doesn't have a history of letting four people go forward. And let me give you a little background. Since 1972, Iowa has had seven multi-candidate Democratic caucuses. Only once in those seven in 1992, has the eventual Democratic nominee not finished in the top three? And the Mm -hmm. asterisk, of course, in 1992 was Tom Harkin, favorite son, senator from Iowa, is running in the caucus. He gets 76.5%. Uncommitted actually finishes second, and Clinton finishes fourth. So it is by no means a normal year. We have a huge boat of candidates, but Iowa doesn't normally let more than three tickets leave that state. You want to be on a plane that night on one of those top three campaigns. And I think it's going to be fascinating to see in 18 days. Somebody that we just spent a lot of time talking about is going to finish out of the medals. And the real question is with New Hampshire a week later, and boy, you and I know this well, it seems like forever until the race starts and the voting starts. But yeah, boy, true. once it does, the treadmill is on 20 miles an hour. And it is really hard to have a moment if you don't have that momentum. And I'm going to be fascinated to see that night who gets on that plane finishing fourth and what what role do they play uh, and what viability do they have going forward. I totally agree. That week between Iowa and New Hampshire is like falling down on a flight of stairs. And uh, you've got to have that Iowa momentum. Now, I will say one of the great secret slogans in New Hampshire is screw Iowa. So that second place in Iowa is not a bad place to be. But fourth, uh, there are, as you say, three and I'd even argue two and a half tickets um, out of Iowa. Bernie, being scary to a bunch of the regulars, could make that third thing more viable to somebody if they have the huge comeback in New Hampshire. And so I, I couldn't agree more. All right. Well, my last call is more a point of observation and irony than a point of uh, criticism. And I say that both because it's true and I'd like to work again. 
the debate last night about should a woman be president, the, the answer, as Bernie said, is obvious. Of course, not only should one day, maybe now, the country will decide, but also can. There's also a lot of talk about why was there no candidate of color on the stage? Well, I'm always for that. I think it's an important, particularly for the Democratic Party that has so many voters of color. But the reason people are on or off the stage uh, is twofold. One, the debate rules set by the DNC. Now, I've been critical of those rules. I think they're kind of silly, and I think the incentives are wrong, but they're based on fundraising and polling. But the polling is less sophisticated than the chattering class. Voters just say what they think. And the biggest problem candidates of color have had, and to a lesser extent, female candidates so far in this process, is in the polling they haven't done well. Um, 50, I, my guess, depending on the polling, is 52 to 55 percent of the Iowa caucus voters will be women. Yet the two very credible, well-funded, and, and uh, uh, strongly performing female candidates, Elizabeth Ford and Amy Klobuchar, together are doing about 23 percent of the vote. So what female voters are telling us is, while gender is important and being perceived as anti-woman, where you know Elizabeth Warren was trying to box in Bernie, is definitely kryptonite, and for good reason— Voters, when making a candidate choice, are not necessarily led by gender. They're led by a lot of other things because if they voted only on gender, uh, there'd be a hell of a lot more polling strength for Elizabeth Warren and Amy Klobuchar. So it tends to oversimplify things. When in doubt, look at what the voters are telling you. And the same thing of voters of color. I was always struck by what a struggle Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, and I'm a particularly big Cory Booker fan. I think he's rather courageous, and uh, I was impressed by his candidacy, at least the rhetoric and message of it. I'm impressed by him. Neither of them in polling could get a lot of traction, at least early, with African-American voters, and they were not unknown. The African-American voters were choosing Joe Biden. Now, you know, you can argue that, you know, perhaps there ought to be a different calculus, and I'm fine with that. The Democrats can sort it out. But this thing is mostly driven by voter choices as reflecting in early polling. That can change. But I, I'm hearing voices call the process totally illegitimate, and that's kind of unfair. Voters opine for what they want, and then they get it. So this simple identity prism we have that people must vote their genetics uh, it's just not how the voters operate. And uh, that's just a point of clarity from the numbers I'd like to make. Again, it's not a criticism of any candidate. Yeah. And Mike, you and I have worked in races where by women candidates actually have a tougher time with women. Right. And so it, it, the dynamic isn't as easy as just thinking, if you look, sound or act like me, you'll vote for me. I, I think it's really on these campaigns to figure out what their lane is, what their unique message is. And I think we may look back and realize that a lot of what we've seen is taken up by candidates that we knew were already going to be there, right? Biden, Warren, and Bernie, they're sucking up a lot of that vote. And there just may not have been a big enough lane for somebody to go around those three cars. Yeah, no, I think so. Uh, fame and and name ID is a priceless asset early because it cooks the polling. And a lot of what the campaign does is upend that. Barack Obama surpassing Hillary Clinton. So over time, the process may reward it. But if you if you calibrate to the voices of early polling, it, it is going to reflect what the voters say. The, the criticism, I think, could be do early 
polling of voters? Do those voters have opinions that are predictive because over a campaign they change their opinions as they damn well have the right to do? But anyway, I, I, as this thing reached the fever crescendo, I just wanted to make the point that, you know, the voters are driving this process. Let me add one thing. Um, one scary thing for campaigns, Mike, is if I, I did a little research this morning, I think we've got one more Des Moines Register poll coming. Uh, it, it looks like the Des Moines Register did a poll maybe the, the weekend before 2016. So it, it will be interesting. All four of the campaigns have led in one of the four uh, Des Moines Register polls. It looks like we may have uh, if they follow true to form like they did in 2016, we might have one more of these polls. Uh, campaigns will be a nervous, strung out wreck by then, <laughs> waiting and hitting refresh uh, on the website to figure out uh, where they may end up. That is absolutely true. Uh, there are there's still so many twists and turns to happen. And boy, oh boy, I uh, I am glad that I'm only opining on the campaign, not doing it, because I've done Iowa caucuses, and I remember that late poll and how it just turns everything upside down. Well, anyway, Robert, thank you for joining us uh, here on Hacks on Tap, and we'll be talking some more soon. Mike, thanks for having me. I'm already looking into ordering one of your uh, 48-pound Hacks on Tap mugs uh, and hoping that you waive the shipping and handling costs. <laughs> For you on the house, it's going to fall off a truck, as you Chicagoans are well aware. All right, thanks, everybody. <laughs> See you next week. 